the National Archives podcast series. This talk is called Black Power and the State. It was presented by Dr. Robin Bunce and was recorded on the 25th of October 2017 at the National Archives, Q. My subject today is Black Power and the State. I've been looking at the years 1967 to 1972. Um, and during that time, my main focus is on, on kind of two interrelated things. First of all, I want to consider the methods and the strategies used by the British state against black power, against individuals who were considered to be leaders of the black power movement, and against organizations that formed a black power movement. So that's one half of what I'm looking at today. And the other half of what I'm looking at today is about um, the way in which black radicals took on the state and by 1972, the way in which, the means by which they had developed strategies which meant that they could su successfully repel state attacks. So it's, I'm looking at those two halves, the attack of the British state on, on black power and black power's counterattack and black power's ultimately successful counterattack against the methods used by the, um, the British state. Um, this is obviously National Archives and a lot of the photographs that you're going to see on the slide is here come from um, the, the archives which are just around the corner and I want to thank the National Archives for their enormous help whilst I've been doing my research. So I want to start by setting this in context by talking about the origins of black power in Britain. Black power emerged in Britain really as a movement certainly in 1967. I think it's fair to say that from around about 1966 there were individuals in Britain who identified themselves with black power but it was only in 1967 that the, Uni sorry, the Universal Coloured People's Association, the UCPA, formally adopted the ideology of black power and expelled its white members, becoming the first um, British organisation to, as I say, formally adopt the ideology of black power in a new manifesto. The catalyst for the adoption by movements in Britain of black power um, was the Dialectics of Liberation Conference, which took place in Camden in July of 1967. There were, this was a, a moment at which um, the kind of global counterculture came to London and you had speakers such as Herbert Marcuse, you had um, beat poets, you had Emmett Grogan um, from the San Francisco Diggers, you had C.L.R. James all speaking at this conference. Notably, and I think this says something about the context of the period, there were no headline women speakers at this conference. This conference was entirely um, devoted to hearing men speak really. Um, and as I say, I think that says something about the context in which, um, the context of Britain at the time, and also the context of kind of, of radicalism, and this was a radical conference organised primarily by white men. The most controversial speaker by far was Stokely Carmichael, um, who arrived in 1967 for this event, um, and he was branded on his arrival by the Daily Sketch as the most powerful um, preacher of racial hatred in um, the world today. And um, the, the Daily Mirror said very, very similar things. And I want you to hold on to that thought. I think it's worth bearing in mind that for white people, and certainly for white journalists at the time, and for white government officials at the time, black power was considered to be a racist movement. And, and the proponents or the exponents of black power were considered to be racist themselves. And that's going to become very, very important when we think about the way in which the British state then tries to prosecute black radicals. Carmichael, as I say, turns up, and Carmichael um, gives a series of different lectures. Um, and he is, um, he's invited, and he's, uh, he's invited by um, black radicals who are active in Britain, and these radicals also speak at the conference. So on the stage, you can see um, he's surrounded by people on his left and on his right, and they're in two pairs. So on his left here, you can see Frankie Y and Michael X, and I'm going to be saying a little bit more about them in a moment. And they come from the organization RAS, or the Racial Adjustment Action Society, and on the other side, you can see Roy Swore and Obi Biegbuna, 
OBB Egbuna is the person who's going to go on to found the British Black Panthers about a year later. Um, but at this stage, he's um, the chair of the Universal Colored People's Association, or UCPA. Um, so not only is Carmichael speaking at this conference, Carmichael is also spending time with black radicals in Britain. He's spending time with people like Darkus Howe. He's spending time with the people you can see on the platform. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a big event. It's not merely him speaking, it's him spending time with radicals in Britain as well. It's after Carmichael arrives um, that the Universal, uh, Universal Colored People's Association adopts the ideology of black power and expels its white members. Um, and it's very shortly after that Michael X is arrested for um, incitement of racial hatred. Um, it's very, and it's within a year that the, um, the Black Panther movement is established in Great Britain. And it's worth noting from a historical point of view that the British Black Panther movement was the first Panther movement to be established outside of the, U, um, the US, although it was never formally affiliated to the American movement. So this leads, to a, a, this leads to a battle which continues for over a decade between the British state and the black power movements. And I'm going to be looking at, f I was thinking about doing something that was slightly more comprehensive, but in the end I decided that these were the four that I wanted to focus on. So we're going to be thinking first about Michael X's trial for, the incitement, of, for incitement of racial hatred, which took place in 1967. And this takes place very, very shortly after Carmichael um, is asked to leave um, by the Home Secretary. Then we're going to be looking at OBB Egbuna's trial for the incitement to murder police officers that took place at the end of 1968. Then we'll think about the Mangrove Nine. And finally, we're going to, start, we're going to finish with the trial of the Old Bailey Three, which I think kind of shows, um, shows the way in which um, the black radicals in the state had reached a point where um, you could almost guarantee that black radicals were going to win by this point, as it were. And as you can see, as we go through this, both sides are going to be learning from the experience of the various trials that we're going to look at here. This is by no means a comprehensive list of all of the different attacks on black radicals, not even all of the different court cases against black radicals in this period. I'm merely selecting these because I think they are, they are crucial moments, moments at which one side or the other learns something important which is going to develop, help develop their strategy in the future. So first of all, Michael X and incitement for racial hatred. Michael X is not really the first um, black radical, certainly not the first black power radical um, who the British state take, take um, a view on and want, and want to stop. The first is Carmichael himself. So Carmichael, um, at the end of the Dialectics of Liberation Conference, Carmichael had planned to stay around for another fortnight and he was planning to speak to the Racial um, Adjustment Action Society, or RAS, in Reading um, in September. Um, he was, however, doorstepped, and he's doorstepped by a new institution that was created specially to police black radicalism, and it was created by Roy Jenkins, the Labour Home Secretary at the time. So it's around about the time, and we don't know the exact date, but it's certainly in July or August of 1968 that Roy Jenkins signs the paperwork, which creates a new branch of sorry, a new part of special branch, which becomes known as the Black Power Desk. Uh, we don't know quite how many people were involved in this. We think it was probably about six at its height and two uh, when the Black Power Desk was mothballed shortly after um, the end of 1968. But between two and six people, um, special branch um, operatives would have been assigned to the Black Power Desk and they would have been um, instructed to keep tabs on the Black Power Movement. Um, much of their material, I'm glad to say, is available from the National Archives. It's very, it makes very, very interesting reading. Carmichael himself is the first person to be approached or the first person that we know of publicly to be approached by the um, Black Power Desk, and he is advised, and I use that term in inverted commas, by the Black Power Desk that he needs to leave the country 
the implication being that if he doesn't, he'll face some kind of legal sanction, although it's unspecified what. As um, Carmichael is not able to speak at the Racial Adjustment Action Society's meeting in Reading, Michael X steps up and he decides that he is the person who is going to make this speech. It's worth saying a few things about where Michael X comes from and what his standing was um, within black radical circles in 1967. Um, so Michael X comes to public attention in 1965 when Malcolm X arrives in Britain. And it's a chance meeting which leads to Michael X becoming essentially Malcolm X's guide to London. And they spend some time together. And it's during this time that Michael X is christened Michael X. He's christened Michael X by a white journalist due to a misunderstanding in a bar in London. Essentially, the white journalist um, is introduced to Michael X as the brother of Malcolm X. So Malcolm X says, this is my brother, Michael. The white journalist is completely unaware of what the term brother means, and therefore he takes it literally and assumes that as Malcolm X is called X, so also Michael X must also be called X as well. Going back to Frankie Y, a similar problem happens there. So Frankie Y turns up, and the white journalist says, what's your name? And he says, Frankie. And then the journalist says, what's your surname? And Frankie says, why? As in, why should I tell you or why are you asking? <laughs> but the white journalist, again, assuming that this must be, a, I don't know, a black thing or something, then christens him Frankie Y. And these names stick. And Michael X is actually quite happy to be known by this, by this term. So he, he comes to public attention in 65, and he quickly sets up the Racial Adjustment Action Society, um, which, of course, is said RAS. And the reason he chooses this term, or at least um, this, is, this is the story that has come down to us, is that RAS is a, is a Jamaican obscenity, and he enjoyed well-spoken well white journalists and politicians using this word without knowing what it meant. So it was kind of a joke on the white people who were using this phrase RAS. The Racial Adjustment Action Society does not, however, become a campaigning organisation. It, it, it does run one small campaign, um, which it does quite effectively, but after that, it, it, Michael X is not really an organiser. He's on record as saying he, doesn't, he didn't support marches, he didn't support sit-ins, he didn't support those kind of things. Um, Darkest Howe's view on Michael X is that he was essentially a hustler and a criminal and somebody who was trying to make money and trying to make a name out of black politics. That was, that was Darkest's view. Um, by 1967, Michael X is largely discredited amongst black radical circles due to the fact he's associated with Rackman, um, the notorious slum landlord. Not wholly discredited, of course, but largely discredited. But Michael X's association with Carmichael does, you know, does give his reputation a, a, something of a boost. And going into and certainly at the latter end of 1967, at the moment he's arrested, his, his capital in black radical circles goes through the roof. Um, his arrest really revives a flagging career, as it were. Michael X um, makes the speech in, in Reading in Carmichael's absence, and it's reports of this, um, it's reports of this um, speech which then lead to his prosecution. One of the, one of the problems I have writing this, writing this talk and one of the problems I have writing about Michael X in BBC History magazine recently is that only part of the law office's files on this case have been declassified and, and my best efforts have not managed to fully declassify it yet. So I know what happens after his, um, after his arrest and after he's charged, but I don't quite know the thinking going up to the charge, so I'm having to fill in some gaps here through inferences, looking at what's going on at the time. So the first thing to say is he's charged under the Race Relations Act, which was introduced by the Howard Wilson Labour government of 1965. And I'll just say a few words about how that act comes into being and the way in which it's conceived at the time. So the 1965 Race Relations Act is effectively its unfinished business from the Attlee Labour government. The Attlee Labour government were quite keen to pass one of these bills, but obviously in 1951 they lose power and they're unable to. 
Now, as far as the Attlee Labour government are concerned, this is an act not about black people or Asian people particularly. This is more to do with anti-Nazism or anti-fascism. So they are conceiving it as a, t a weapon to use against fascists. They are not really thinking about it in terms of black and Asian immigrants. They're not really thinking about it in those terms at all. It's also worth saying that the act itself doesn't have any conception of privilege at all in it. So a racist act, according to the act, is a racist act. And it doesn't matter who is racially abusing whom as it were. There is, no, there is no sense in which this is um, designed to protect minorities, or th there's no sense in which the minority rights are more important or, or more worthy of legal protection than anybody else's rights in this Act. And in fact, as it's going through Parliament, it's explicitly flagged up that white people who are racially abused can also um, appeal under this Act. In 1966, um, the Act is used for the very first time against um, a guy who I believe is called Christopher Britton, who was a Nazi and who was publishing um, anti-Asian leaflets in Southall. Um, so the very first time it's used, it is used as was intended by the Labour government and certainly intended by the Labour movement in a way which is kind of relatively uncontroversial. Although it's worth noting that Britain, this, this Nazi who is convicted, gets off on appeal. It's interesting to note who doesn't get attacked by the Act. So Duncan Sandys, who is a, um, a Conservative politician who has very, very um, uh, regressive views on, 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 on marriage between black people and white people and is very public about, um, about his views on that marriage should be prohibited, he is never prosecuted under this Act, even though he's making speeches in 65, 66, 67. He's never prosecuted under the Act. Nor is the Daily Sketch. So the Daily Sketch is, um, is probably, the best way of describing it is it's brought up by the Daily Mail in 1971. So it's kind of a precursor of the Daily Mail that we all know and love today. It's the, on that side of the political spectrum. The Daily Sketch is also pumping out um, anti-immigrant headlines on a regular basis. And there are complaints made under the Act, but the Act is never invoked against the Daily Sketch. So it's interesting to see who is prosecuted under this Act in the early years and who is not. Michael X is prosecuted under the Act, and so is Roy Saw, who um, I showed you in a slide just a moment ago. These are two of the people who are very, very early on. I think there, there are two and three in the, in the prosecution chain, or perhaps three and four in the pro prosecution chain. Notably, under the Act, um, people who were prosecuted, the, the prosecution had to go to the Attorney General to be authorised. And once the, once the prosecution was in train, um, somebody if found guilty could be fined up to £1,000 and sentenced to up to two years in prison. Michael X is charged under the Act, and this immediately, again, it makes him a martyr in, in black radical circles. Because as people like Egg Booner say very, very publicly and very, very quickly, this is a double standard. Duncan Sandys can say what he says in public, and he's never prosecuted. But Michael X says some things in public, and then he's prosecuted. Um, this phrase which um, gets Michael X into trouble is a phrase that he uses in his Reading speech, and he's referring back to the, um, the 1959 Notting Hill riots, and, he said, and he's recalling <coughs> black women being attacked, and he says to his audience, if you see a, a white man lay his hands on a black woman, I tell you, kill that man. I'm, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that's roughly what he says. And it's this that is, this is printed in the Daily Express, and it's this that Peter is focused on. As I say, we don't quite know where the, where the state's idea to use the Race Relations Act against Michael X came from. But what we do know is that subsequent to him being charged, um, there are a variety of other ways in which the Race Relations Act is used against um, black politics. So one example is that the BBC, for example, in August show an extended interview with Stokely Carmichael in which Stokely Carmichael is talking about white power and he's talking about colonialism. 
and the, the, senior, the most senior figure in the Metropolitan Police, on the basis of that, pays a visit to the BBC and says, look, under the Race Relations Act, we think you're treading a very fine line here. We think the BBC may well be guilty um, of, um, of inciting racial hatred by putting Carmichael on television. And if you do it again, you know, we, we're not going to look on this kindly. So there are, so, and it's also interesting that Conservative MPs, when Michael X makes further speeches, write to the Attorney General or to the Home Office and say, Michael X is speaking again, we think this is incitement to racial hatred, charge him again. Notably, um, the Attorney General turns those down. My point being that this idea may not have emerged in the Home Office, for all we know. It certainly was, the, the, the Home Office certainly ran with the idea of attacking black radicals under the Race Relations Act, but the idea may well have emerged from um, a member of the public writing in or from, um, or from a Conservative MP, or there are a variety of different people who might have come up with this, according to the files that I have seen. Michael X, so that's the, the, the strategy then against black radicals in the first instance is to go after them as racists. And as I said at the beginning of my talk, this is very much in the air. Most white people who um, are thinking about black power at all are assuming that black power is some kind of racism, assuming that, I should say, entirely wrongly. Michael X is tried in Reading, and his um, trial begins in September, and Michael X makes the following defense. His defense is that, basically, there is a language barrier between himself and the white journalists who were recording um, his speech, and also between him and the white lawyers and the white judges who are now attempting to sit in judgment upon him. Um, so he says that effectively, says Michael X, I am speaking the language of the ghetto, he says, whereas you are speaking the Queen's English. And whilst we have a common vocabulary, you know, the words mean radically different things when I say them to when you say them. This is his basic defence. So he dismisses his solicitor on the basis that he couldn't understand his solicitor's language. And when he moves to cross-examine the various witnesses who are against him, he asks the judge to appoint an interpreter so that he can cross-examine in, in quote-unquote the language of the ghetto, that's how he describes it. The um, presiding judge is entirely unsympathetic to this defence, okay? Entirely unsympathetic to this defence. Um, but when he does um, cross-examine um, Mr. Park, who is, I think he's called Malcolm Park, um, who was the um, Daily Express journalist who took this down, basically Ma Ma um, Michael X quizzes him on, um, on the Caribbean vernacular. He says, you know, are you a mama guy? To, to Malcolm Park, and Park says, I have no idea what you're talking about. And, Mike, and Michael X says, well, you know, I think I've made my point. You just don't understand the language I'm using. But as I say, the judge is unsympathetic to this. Michael X has one other strategy that he's going to use, and this is a strategy based on statistics. So the BBC had recently published a poll um, showing how many phone calls they got about a programme on, on immigration. So the BBC does a programme on immigration. On, on the back of that, they get 150 phone calls to the BBC, and 148 of those phone calls are from white people saying, we think black people should be repatriated. Two of the phone calls say, this is a really interesting documentary, thank you for raising the problems you know, um, in this country. So Michael X says, on those statistics, he needs a jury pool, if it's going to be a white jury, he says he needs a jury pool of 900 people. Okay, that's what he says. In order to get 12 people who are not racist, 12 white people who are not racist, he needs a jury pool of 900. And this is, again, this is what he says when the jury is being impaneled. But once again, the judge is not having that. Okay? So the strategy of the state is to accuse him of racism and of inciting racial hatred. His strategy, his pushback is to say, one, there's a language barrier. Two, actually, there is a deeper structural problem here. In order to get a fair trial, I need a massive jury pool, because look at the stats. White people, you know, the vast majority of them are racist, in the sense that they want black people to be, quote-unquote, sent home. Doesn't work out well. 
he is um, sentenced to one year in prison and he serves eight months. But this backfires spectacularly because Michael X goes into the he goes into the summer of '67 as a kind of uh, a kind of a figure who's on the wane. Okay, no one's really paying attention to him anymore, and black radicals certainly are not taking him desperately seriously. But he comes out of the trial a martyr, and he is not just a martyr in terms of black radicals. It's not just people like Obi Agbuna and Darkus Howe who are then starting to build bridges with him after the trial. It is white people as well. White people can see the double standard in this. They can see that there is some problem with accusing black people who are in a minority of, um, of inciting racism. Okay? I, I don't think white people are yet in a position where they can articulate that particularly effectively, but, a, but polling data is showing that they think that this was some, in some sense there was something wrong with this strategy. So the state does learn from this, and the state never, ever goes down this route again. So that's the first of the cases. Moving on to the second one. Oh, yes, and by the way, one thing I did, as I said, we did, um, I did manage to find subsequent paperwork to this when we're looking at the law office. And you can even see very, you can even see by September. So Michael X is making further speeches in late August and they're getting petitions in, in sep early September to say, look, charge him again. He's making the same speech again, charge him again. And you can even see in, in early September that the law office have got cold feet and they're deciding, no, they're not going to charge him with this offense again. They're, they're going to charge him with this one time see how it goes, and um, yeah, our subsequent speeches, he's never charged again. My second, the second case I want to talk to you about is the case of OBB Egbuna, and, the, um, and he's charged with the incite incitement to murder police officers. So this is a very, very different charge, and this is now the strategy the state are going to be using against black people or black radicals. They're going to charge them with incitement, this incitement to do violence, not incitement um, on racial grounds, but incitement to do violence in a variety of different ways. So Egbuna, as I say, he was um, elected chair of the um, UCPA in July 1967. He then goes on to co-write the UPCA's manifesto, um, which is the first Black Power Manifesto um, published in Britain, which comes out in September, around about the time that Michael X is on trial. Um, he then subsequently splits with the UCPA over kind of ideological um, differences. And then in May or June, it's difficult to pin it down, but it's one or the other. He founds, May or June 1968, he founds um, the British Black Panther movement. It's during this time that he's editing Black Power Speaks, and this is his journal. And Black Power Speaks, as I say, it's in, it's in these pages we can see that Michael X's stock has really risen since his conviction. Black Power Speaks is um, one of Britain's early um, black radical journals. It's up there with a journal like The Black Eagles, which is published around about the same time, um, or something like The Hustler. Hustler isn't really a black power journal, but it's certainly a radical journal that's been published at this time. And then Black Dimension comes the year after this. And it's in the, it's in the pages of Black Power Speaks that we see um, the, the Black Panthers launched and we see the reasoning for it. Um, it's, during the process, sorry, it's during the process of um, the fourth edition that Egbuna pens an essay which has never been published in its entirety, but you can find it in the National Archives. Um, and this is known, this becomes known in the press as the murder document. Okay? And this is the document police and the Department for Public Prosecutions base their prosecution of Egbuna on. As I say, it's known as the murder document. It's more properly referred to as the title being What to Do When the Cops Lay Their Hands on a Black Man at Speaker's Corner. And what it is, is it's a manifesto for communal or collective self-defense. So the simple argument that Egbuna makes in this is that if one black radical is attacked during a demonstration by the police, then all the black ra all you know, the, his or her fellow black radicals should um, join um, the defense of this person. Okay? So if one person is attacked by the police, then everybody has the right to defend this one person. Okay? 
which is, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's certainly not incitement to murder police officers. It's merely um, in step with thinking in black radical circles at this time that self-defense is a legitimate thing to do. And if one person is attacked, then, you know, it's also legitimate to defend somebody who is part of your community. There's nothing illegal about this, and there is, there is certainly nothing um, in terms of the incitement to, um, to murder police officers in here. Nonetheless, police seize on this document and they build a case around it. Egbuna goes to trial in December 1968, and Egbuna's strategy is very, very different. In fact, it's worth saying that Egbuna has two separate legal strategies. The first legal strategy is, um, I guess we could call it the, the Charles I strategy, um, which is to say he refuses to recognise the authority of British courts. Okay, that's his initial strategy going in. And he makes a big deal about it. This is what he's going to do. And he publishes a letter um, to black radicals in London, which is um, read out at... Uh, there's a conference that goes on in Earl's Court. Sorry, I, I forget the name of it. Anyway, the letter is read out, and this is his strategy. However, by the time the trial starts, it becomes clear that he's actually adopted a second strategy. And his second strategy is to give over his defence to um, the Right Honourable Sir Dingle Foote, QCMP. Um, and Dinglefoot's advice to Egbuna is that he needs to remain utterly silent during the, the trial and that Dinglefoot will take care of his legal representation. This is, of course, a massive climb down for Egbuna. Egbuna was not in favour at all of, um, of white people fighting black people's battles. In fact, that's, this is one of, his, one of his key reasons why he founds the Black Panthers. He wants a, an organisation where black people are going to represent themselves and black people are going to stand up for themselves and you know, not look to white people or invite to white people or even allow white people to do that for him. So this is a major climb down. And this destroys Egbuna's reputation. So whilst he's in prison, he's effectively kicked out of the leadership of the British Black Panther Party. And by the time he gets out of prison, I'll tell you a few things about that, he's, he's been abandoned by the, Black Pan by the Black Panther movement. And letters are circulating which um, explicitly um, say that Egbuna is, is kind of an outcast from the movement. Um, it's interesting that in um, the, the... There's a kind of version of this in the, um, in the, la in the third... Of, sorry, forgive me fifth edition of Black, the Black Eagles magazine, which again criticizes Egbuna for this legal strategy. So it was something not just in the Panthers, it was common to a number of black radicals, a number of black radical organizations, that they felt that Egbuna had made a wrong step here, that this strategy was, was in effect a sellout. Not only is Egbuna's um, strategy considered to be a sellout, it's also a legal failure in the sense that Egbuna is convicted for the incitement to murder police officers on what I would describe as enormously flimsy evidence. At this point, it's worth noting another strategy that is used by the state, and this occurs in a number of different black power trials, that Egbuna is given a suspended sentence. And the suspended sentence serves two purposes. The first purpose is to ensure that Egbuna is no longer at liberty, as it were, um, to engage in radical politics. Egbuna is no fool. Egbuna is an educated man. He knows that the police, there is an equation in the police's mind between black radical politics and criminality. So evidence of one, that you are a black radical, is also taken as evidence of the other, that you are a criminal. So Egbuna knows that he has to no longer be involved in frontline black radical politics. But at the same time, Egbuna is not sent to prison, and therefore Egbuna is not turned into a martyr. So it's a very shrewd strategy on the part of the British state. He's not martyred, but he is effectively um, no longer able to participate in frontline radical politics. So the Egbuna trial, unfortunately, um, is, is a success for the British state. Um, they achieve everything they want to. And Egbuna, from that point onwards, really plays no, no part in black radical politics in Britain um, and, until he leaves Britain, I believe, in 1972.
The Mangrove 9 trial is an altogether different um, issue. So this, this is the point at which um, black radicals start with, and this is also the point at which, for the very first time, we have a self-consciously black power strategy. So you have a black power case with a black power legal strategy. And this strategy is, is devised by a number of the different people. You'll see there are unfortunately only eight people in this picture. I've got another picture of the Mangrove 9. I've only ever managed to get pictures of eight of them. I've never found a picture of all nine of them. But who knows? I will continue my research. So let's think, about this. let's think about the background to the trial. Let's think also about the legal strategy. So the background to the trial is, um, is um, the Mangrove Restaurant in Notting Hill, which was owned and run by Frank Critchlow. The reason for um, the police attacking um, the Mangrove restaurant were numerous. Some of them are political, some of them are just to do with the prejudices of the local police officers, but I'll run through some of them. In terms of the politics, um, this is um, one of the first black-owned and black-run restaurants in, in Notting Hill or in London at all, and therefore it becomes quite quickly an area of decolonized territory. This is a territory where black radicals can organize, this is a this is um, a place um, where black people can go for support. This is a place where um, new immigrants can turn up and they can get help and support and they can get you know, directed to the, the, the people who can help them. So it's an area of decolonized territory. And this is not lost on the police. The police realize that this is a place over which they have very, very limited control. So part of what the mangrove, part of what attacks on the mangrove um, restaurant are is, um, is an attempt for the white police force to um, reassert their control over this area of what has become decolonized territory. And it's very much conceived in this terms by the black radicals who are defending the mangrove. And you get a lot of discussion of the kind of colonial nature of the occupying forces in Notting Hill at the time. So that's one reason. Um, other reasons are to, simply to do with the prejudices of, of the white officers who are involved. So um, Critchlow is a man who is making money, and he's making money in Britain in 1970. Those of you who remember um, what's going on economically in the 19, late 60s, early 70s, it's not a good time for the British economy. I mean, things get worse, but it's not a good time for the British economy. So as far as the white officers are concerned, what you've got here is you've got a black man who is becoming successful economically in a period where lots of white people are losing out economically. So as far as they're concerned, obviously that's not a crime, but as far as they're concerned, that goes against what they are expecting. So I think it's worth saying that something about the nature of police racism at this point. The police are not racist in the sense that um, they hate all black people. Police are racist in the sense that they are happy for black people to be here as second-class citizens. Okay? Whilst black people are here to do the jobs that white people don't want to do, the police are happy with that. But it's at the point at which black people start to make to establish their own businesses and to, um, to, you know, to, make a, to make Britain their home, as it were, that's the point at which the police think something is fundamentally wrong here. And this is never fully articulated, but I think this is behind a lot of the attacks which you see on black people in Notting Hill at this time. For example, one of the things that police will often do is they will raid weddings. So if there's a black wedding taking place in Notting Hill or whatever, the police will simply turn up and raid the wedding. Purely, you know, they, they'll find nothing. They'll, no one will be charged as a result of this. But it's making it quite clear that this is not your home. This is not the place where you get married, as it were, you know. So it's those kind of symbolic gestures which are made by the police simply to kind of underline the fact that black people are visitors here. They are not people who, um, they're not citizens as far as the police are concerned. It's on that note, another reason why they are attacking Critchlow's restaurant is not only is Critchlow successful economically, Critchlow has a white girlfriend. And again, this is something that the police are very concerned about. 
never articulated fully, but it's something that, that, that has drawn them to um, the police's attention. There's a man who's, a black man who's doing something that a black man should not do as far as they are concerned. The police, I think it's worth saying, they see their job not merely as upholding the law, but as policing Britishness and policing the norms, the moral norms, not just the laws of what's going on in Notting Hill at the time. I think the final reason that they want, or the final reason that I'll go into because time is short, is to do with drugs. So every time that they um, raid the restaurant, they are looking for evidence of drugs. And it's worth saying that in numerous, numerous raids, they never find anything. They don't find a single, not class A, not class B, nothing. Not an ounce of anything, not a pill, nothing. Okay? So every single time they raid, they say we are raiding for drugs. And every single time they raid, they find nothing. But there's a subtext here. And this was all exposed in the middle of the 70s, and this is something that black radicals were aware of in the early 70s and the late 60s, that the police are running in London at this time a drug recycling operation. Um, so they are seizing drugs from the streets, they are booking a, a proportion of that, and then they are sending out into the, into the community the rest of the stuff that they haven't booked. The pretext for doing this is that they are doing this to raise money so that they can pay informants. So, you know, they, they, they what's the word? Um, the ends justify the means. Um, and what they are trying to do is they are, because, again, of racial stereotypes, they are trying to enlist young black men as their, as their drug pushers because they believe that <coughs> young black men are drug pushers. So, you know, as far as they're concerned, the, the stereotype fits. Frank Critchlow refuses to have anything to do with this. Um, and I think it's, this is another reason why the police want to shut him down, that he is refusing to, um, he's refusing to participate in the quote-unquote recycling operation which the police have got going on in Notting Hill. It's in, on August the 9th, 1970, um, that um, a march in defence of the Mangrove restaurant is organised. It's organised by Althea Jones-Leconte. She was a biochemistry doctoral student, I believe, at Imperial College. And um, she, by, 19, sorry, by the late 1969, early 1970, she's recognised as the leading figure in the Black Panther movement. They didn't have a formal leader, but if they had have had a formal leader, it would have been her. She's recognised as the leading figure there. So she's um, crucial to organising this, and this is her making one of the two speeches that kicks off the march. Barbara Bees also played a role uh, organising the march, and you can see her um, holding um, um, a pig's head. Um, at the, the front of the march there, the pig's head obviously being a representation of um, the police. Darkus Howe also plays a role um, organising the march. Darkus at this point is not part of the Black Panther movement, but he is, um, you know, he's, he's very sympathetic to the Panthers and they are quite happy to work with him. He also helps organise the march. The idea behind the march, and this is an idea that, um, that Darkus Howe had uh, got from, um, looking from his involvement in the Black Power Revolution, in 1970 in Trinidad was that you should march to the symbolic centres of white power. And this is exactly what they do. There are three police stations um, around, about the, um, around about the Mangrove restaurant. All three of them had been involved in the persecution of the Mangrove restaurant and the marchers marched to each, or the, the idea was that the march would march to each one of these in turn. So you march to the police station, you, have a, you stage a demonstration, you have a speech, you march to the next one, do the same, and so on and so forth. Um, Two-thirds of the way through their march, when they are kettled by the police, on trial, the police said that there were 500 officers available on that day, um, policing about 150 protesters, the majority of whom were black. Um, the files here say that it's about 700. So um, the police underestimated on oath the number of police officers who are available. But as you can see, there's a... a, a a, a, an incredible disproportion in the number of officers who are used to, to police um, uh, not this number of marchers. Spontaneous melee breaks out. About a dozen people are arrested, and this then 
consolidates around nine people who become the mangrove nine. Let's think about the legal, let's think about the legal strategy the state uses against the mangrove nine. And it's here that we have the most complete documentary evidence of what the state is planning. So the Home Office, the Home Secretary um, himself, and this is Reginald Maudlin, the Conservative Home Secretary, is briefed on what is going on, and his personal private secretary um, is involved in coming up with the strategy. So he's, provi he's provided with special branch documents, and the interesting thing about the special branch documents is that basically from the um, imprisonment of, sorry, from the um, conviction of Ed Buna all the way through to the Mangrove March, it appears that um, the special branch's black power desk had, had achieved nothing. They had effectively been wound down, kind of put on half-time, as it were, and they, they assumed that um, the prosecution of Egbuna had ended the Black Power movement. They had very little, <coughs> although police in Notting Hill are aware that there is a growing Black Power movement on the ground, the people who are tasked within Special Branch with keeping tabs on this, they, they have not done their, that job at all well. And that's one of the things that comes out very clearly in the documents. So it's worth saying that one of the reasons why um, black radicals are able to launch this, um, this new initiative is because the special branch just didn't see them coming. Okay? Special, they were organizing below the radar. And that was a deliberate strategy on the part of Althea Jones-Lacon. She wanted um, the Black Panthers not to be the kind of organization who got their names in the headlines, but the kind of organization who were doing genuinely good at a grassroots level. The minister, uh, the Home Secretary, is given then legal advice on how to proceed. And this is interesting because it does evaluate previous legal cases. So it looks at the, Ma the Michael X case, and it says explicitly, this was a backfire. We shouldn't do it that way again. We could do it this way. We could accuse them of inciting racial hatred, but we think that will backfire. That will simply turn them into martyrs. So this is the point where we can say, yes, the government is learning from its past experience. Government then also makes another right. Oh, sorry, the civil servants also then make another suggestion, which is um, based on the 1970 um, Immigration Act. The 1970 Immigration Act gave the government the power to repatriate black people who hadn't been in the country for more than a decade. So one of the suggestions made by civil servants to the Home Secretary is simply, where possible, repatriate the, the, the people from the nine who, haven't, who are first-generation migrants, who haven't been in the country for more than 10 years, just repatriate them. Okay, so that's another piece of advice given to the Home Secretary. But that also comes with the caveat that they think, well, that might not work for all nine. We don't quite know who these people are. There's some indication they, they, they seem to know that Frank Critchlow has been in the country for a while, and therefore that won't work for him. So there are, um, so there are problems with that option. So the final option they come up with, uh, when this is the option they run with, is incitement to riots. They think if, if they can go after the black radicals for incitement to riot, the public will the public will bear that. The public won't won't object to that. There's no no obvious kind of you know there's no, no obvious double standards here. This you know that, that this is the kind of strategy that can go ahead. So I think it's worth noting that these decisions against black radicals were being taken in Whitehall, and the Home Secretary himself was involved in making these kinds of decisions. So these are not decisions about prosecutions being made in a politically neutral sense. The politics of these decisions is being evaluated by senior civil servants. Um, in, you know, in conversation with the Home Secretary. Let's think about the strategy which wins the Mangrove uh, Nine their freedom. So the first thing to say is that they are learning from, um, they are also learning from the past. So the one thing they did, one of the first things they decide is that learning from Egbuna's experience and also learning from the experience of the Metro trial, they will not entrust their defence to white lawyers alone. Okay? So they're going to be very careful which white lawyers they invite on board, but two of them, initially, and three of them, by the end of the trial, are going to represent themselves. 
and that is a deliberate political strategy to cut through the legal jargon and talk directly to the jury and to explain their experience of police brutality um, to the jury directly without having lawyers in between. So that's one idea of self-representation. <coughs> Secondly, jury. So they, when, Mal when Michael X says, we need, I, need to, I need to consider the jury here, um, this, this is something that um, the, the darker certainly pays attention to and thinks is quite an interesting idea. Obviously, Michael X wasn't able to execute that idea particularly well, but Darkus and, um, and the Mangrove Nine are. So they get hold of transcripts of, of the um, occupations of everybody in the jury pool. They get transcripts of where these people live, and they select a jury. On the, they initially make a request for an all-black jury. This is a request that takes two full days of court time because they go back through all of the different precedents and all of the different statutes which indicate that, according to the Magna Carta, everybody, every citizen of the United Kingdom has a right to a jury of their peers, and that's what they're arguing for. At the end of that two-day presentation, the judge dismisses it without giving a legal reason. Nonetheless, they were kind of anticipating that, so their fallback position is to select a jury on a class basis. And this is what they do. They managed to get two, there were four black people in the jury pool, they managed to get two of them. It's worth noting that the prosecution starts vetoing black people when they turn up to, to, for jury service. So they stand, they're, they're about to take the jury, the impaneling oath, um, but the prosecution is also trying to play this game. The prosecution is trying to exclude black people from the jury pool, and they succeed on two occasions. But they do manage to get two black people in the jury. The rest of the jury is selected on a class basis, and here the idea is that working class people have a better understanding of police brutality than middle class people, because working class white people are more likely to be on the receiving end of police brutality. So they go for a jury on a class basis as an alternative. The next thing that they do is that they, they go for a grassroots campaign. And this begins outside the Old Bailey, and this is the very first time in British history where um, a campaign has taken place outside the Old Bailey itself. The campaign is run exclusively by black women, um, and the reason they go for this is because they are well aware that um, white police officers beat up black men, but white police officers do not, in public at least, beat up black women. So they do this in order to avoid violence. Um, the police, however, try and move the black women along, and they say, look, you can't, go, you can't stand out here. The black women inquire, why are we not allowed to campaign here? Um, and the police officers say, well, you might be subject to racist violence, and therefore, for your own protection, you need to desist. What they do, however, is they immediately, diagonally opposite the Old Bailey, and it's there to this day, is a churchyard, where the police really don't have very much jurisdiction. So they set up their campaign there. Um, in line of sight, it's you know, 10 metres away from the Old Bailey, so they are still carrying on their protest in a, in a place where the police really can't move them along. Um, they also start a media campaign, and this is a campaign which is in, in kind of countercultural journals like IT, um, the International Times, and Time Out. Um, also, there are, there are flyers and magazines produced by the Black Panther movement themselves. Um, it's Prud Donde, um, who um, was a friend of Darkus, and he was on the Black Panther Central Corps, played a role in editing those. The final thing they do is that they consistently impugn the partiality of the judge. So throughout the entire case, Darkus and Althea, who are defending themselves, they're not using lawyers, they will consistently call out the judge for signs of bias. What this means is that by the end of the case, um, the judge is under enormous pressure to prove his impartiality. And therefore, he gives the following verdict. So the nine are found not guilty on the principal charge of incitement to riot because their legal strategy has been so effective. And the judge gives the following verdict. He says that he has found, at the end of the case, evidence of racial hatred on both sides. And whilst the judge thinks that this is an impartial verdict, you know, both sides are equally to blame, actually this is dynamite. 
And the reason it's dynamite is that white journalists have been saying that the black power movement is racist since 1967. So that is not news. What is news is that the Metropolitan Police are racist. Okay? And this is what the newspapers pick up on, and this is what they're able to make. Um, so yes, yeah, so it's important that that statement is understood in context. Everybody knew that Judge Clark was going to say that the black radicals are racist. You know, that was just given. But when he says that the police are as well, that's the point that people take home. So what they're able to do effectively is to turn the tables on their accusers and to, get, uh, and to, get to uh, win their freedom and to put the state on trial and to establish for the very first time in British legal history that there is evidence of racial hatred in the Metropolitan Police. Finally, and this one I will do very, very quickly, the trial of the Old Bailey um, Three is, is different again. Three people are accused here, Olive Morris, who you can see holding the megaphone, Darkus Howe, who you can see in close-up, and Abdul McIntosh, and I'm afraid to say I haven't been able to find a photograph of him. They are, um, basically what happens is that they're, they're in court for the mangrove trial, and there's another black power trial going on at the same time. So at the lunch break, Darkus meets Olive Morris and Abdul McIntosh, and they're protesting outside the other courtroom. Okay? It's during this that there is, a, uh, you know, again, a spontaneous melee with police. Police officers attack them, um, and then they are charged with assault. And this is a very different case because the Panthers are even more on their game in terms of legal strategy this time than they were in the Mangrove Nine. So the first thing that's different is that the Panthers, once this incident has happened and Darkus and Althea and Abdul, sorry, Darkus and Olive and Abdul have been arrested, um, the Panthers are there collecting witness statements. This will ensure that the, not the only witnesses in trial in, in court are police witnesses. This will make sure there are civilian witnesses as well. So they take witness statements, and those are submitted. Secondly, rather than going for an all-black jury, um, they go for a jury which has, quote-unquote, fair representation. And the judge on this occasion says, yes, I recognize that this is an important trial. And we need to have fair representation on the jury, and therefore four of the 12 in the jury are black. And that's a very interesting legal precedent, and it's worth bearing that in mind, I think. Um, and this, I think, speak, and everything else is run the same, so they, they selected the rest of the jury selected on a class basis. What is different, I think, is the state's approach. The state had tried, in the mangrove trial, to throw everything at the witness, to throw everything at the uh, defendants, to begin with the presumption of guilt, as it were. So they, they select Judge Clark um, to be, the, um, to be the, the, the judge in the mangrove case because he is known to be a hardliner. He's a judge of the old school. You know, he's going to throw the book at these people, okay? <coughs> But in this case, they select a different judge, and this is Judge Marnon. And the reason he is selected, and I've had a quick look into his background, is that Judge Marnon before, he, he, was, um, he was a senior judge in Kenya in 1958 to 1959, and having left Kenya, where he was prosecuting the Mau Mau, it's worth noting, um, he then becomes um, part of the federal Supreme Court in the Caribbean. So it seems to me that what, and I think this, this happens time and time and time again, that people who had, white people who had an experience of colonialism in a colonial context are then employed when they return to Britain to prosecute or to sit in judgment on black people who live in Britain. So it seems to me that the, the state had deliberately chosen people, so chosen a white judge with a colonial background, with a, with a background in the colonial administration to prosecute this case. Marnham takes a very, very different line. Rather than impugning um, the, rather than siding with the prosecution immediately, he tries to play it even-handedly. Um, and that allows him, at the end of the case, having played it even-handedly the whole way through, to come down in his summing up on the side of the prosecution. So they seem, once again, to have learned from the experience of the Mangrove case um, that, you know, the Clark's 
on the side of the prosecution from the beginning didn't work. So Marnham is trying something different. And this is certainly the way that Darkus and Olive Morris and Abdul McIntosh, um, in, in what survives of their notes from the trial, saw it, that they saw it as a recalibration based on the experience of the Mangrove case. Nonetheless, um, they run a very, very effective campaign. Darkus defends himself, again, from the dock, and they, run a run, and they are all acquitted on all of the charges. In fact, I believe Abdul McIntosh, halfway through, the judge simply dismisses all of the charges against him and he walks out before, um, before the jury even learned a verdict. So there we are. We've looked at four cases today, and I think what we can see is very interesting in terms of the evolution of strategy on both sides. We have black radicals who are learning very, very, um, who are paying close attention to the strategies that the state are using against them, and are therefore, um, you know, they're therefore by 1972 in a position where they can take on the state and win. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.